Well, this fall, most of you know, we've been going through this series, an overflow series. We're talking about how do we let this life that Christ has given us overflow into the lives around us. And this month, we're specifically looking at how do we share the love of Christ where we live, where we work, and where we play. So we spent a couple weeks talking about our neighborhoods and where we live, and now we're spending two weeks talking about our context of work. How do we how do we share this life of Christ, express it in the context of work? And I want to remind you that I'm, I'm def- I want your idea of work to be as broadly defined as you can make it. Uh, many of us in this room work. We have lots of responsibilities, but we don't necessarily get paid for them with a paycheck. But that is all part of work. So I want you to be thinking about whatever work is in your particular life stage and context. And we started last week with a talking just big picture, a, a, a biblical overview of work. We traced work through the story of creation and fall and redemption. We looked at God's plan for work in the beginning at creation and how work was not this necessary evil, not a result of the fall, but it was, it was part of God's creation. It was this good thing that he did. He wanted us to work as those who were made in his image. He wanted us to partner with him in shaping his world through our work. And so work is this very good thing. And then we talked about the fall and what happened when sin entered the world, how that introduced now this this dynamic and work of painful toil. This work that God originally intended to be life-giving and always energizing, now we often experience it in the context of it being frustrating sometimes, tiring, sometimes it feels fruitless, it's something we would like to avoid, or sometimes we attach too much identity to it. And then we looked at what happens in redemption. With the coming of Jesus Christ in the gospel, as Christ enters our lives, how does Christ begin to redeem our work? And of course, the painful toil doesn't go away, right? But we, get to be, we begin to experience Christ as this faithful companion through the thick and thin of work. And we start to try to do all of our work. Now we're working with him and we're thinking about him and he's the motivation behind what we do. We looked at this well-known passage. Whatever you do, Work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for people, right? Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. So Jesus comes into the center of our work, begins to transform how we understand work. So that was very high level last week. So this week, I want to get real concrete and practical. How do we actually do this in the context of our work? And we're going to do that in two ways. First, we're going to look at this passage for a couple minutes and set some context here for work. And then um, we're actually going to get a chance to hear from one another. I emailed uh, several of you this week and asked the question, what does it look like for you to try to put Jesus at the center of your work? And so you're going to get to hear from yourselves in real practical terms in various professions. I tried to draw from different professions and life stages. And so you get to hear how you all are trying to navigate this in real concrete terms. So let's spend a couple minutes on First Peter. Uh, and let me just tell you, we haven't read this book, obviously. We're just jumping in for a week. The context of, of Peter, of 1 Peter, it's written into the backdrop of, of persecution and suffering. These are Christians who are trying to live out their faith, and they're really feeling the, the, the crunch of living in, in the clash of two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and Jesus, and yet they're still in this world that has different value systems. And so they're, they're feeling the tension of that. Uh, The letter starts, Peter addresses them like this, to God's chosen people, strangers in the world. And he reminds them, you have a dual identity. You you are God's chosen. You are precious in his sight. He loves you 
you have this beautiful eternal inheritance, and yet for now, you experience yourselves as strangers, as exiles, as aliens in this world that doesn't operate according to the values of God's kingdom. Later on, he says it this way, dear friends, don't be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Saying, hey, you live at the clash of these two kingdoms. Don't be surprised if you feel the, the heat from that, if you feel the tension of, of doing that. And I say that today, uh, especially because I think for many of us in this room, nowhere do we experience that clash more than in the context of our work right? I mean, we experience in various places, but for many of us, work is the primary place where it's like, I mean, I'm trying to figure out how to follow Jesus and do that well. And that just feels really hard to do in this context. Because there's all sorts of things going on around me, even in me that make following Jesus especially complicated at work. And so we're going to talk about that this, this morning. And I want to focus in on verse 15 today. So if you've got your Bibles, your phones, take a look at verse 15. I'll put it up on the screen if you don't have it. This is where I'm going to hone in here. Peter says, In your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Now that second sentence is probably the most famous sentence in this passage, right? Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks. Now that assumes something, doesn't it? It assumes that people might, they might ask, right? <laughs> it assumes that, that in this, you know, for these first century Christians, that their lives might look different, right? That they might be living in a way that, that demands an explanation, that demands, a, I, I'm curious, like I'm seeing something different. Can you, what's that all about? And I, I, when, when it comes to work, I was thinking this week, you know, work is probably the trickiest context in our lives to give an answer to everybody. Like there's, there's political issues involved in that. It's, you have to be very careful in a professional environment. So it, it's probably the trickiest place in our lives, much trickier than in neighboring and, or you're just, you know, watching a kid's sports game with a, with a friend or something like that. It's the trickiest place to do it. But on the other hand, I would say it's, it's probably the most obvious place where we might live a life that, would that might look different. It's, it's, it's the most, I would say, it's the most upfront and personal view of our lives that people have. I would say even more than our neighbors. I mean, our neighbors, we see them maybe, you know, in and out of the house. But what goes on in your house, no one really knows what's going on. And, and uh, you, you catch each other for moments. But uh, at your work, you know, on the one hand, it's kind of less personal because it's a professional environment. But but really, people, people at work, they have a, a front row seat <laughs> to who you are, right? They, they see how you uh, deal with success. They see how you deal with failure. They see your gifts. They see your weaknesses. They see how you cope with stress. I mean, they, the, the real you is going to leak out in work. They're going to see how you treat people in, in conflict, in times of trial. So in some ways, while it might be the hardest place to give an answer, it might be the best place we have to actually stand out and, and look different. It's the closest view that most people might have of our lives, for better or for worse. So the question I want to ask today is, how can we live our lives in the context of our work and responsibilities in such a way that it might stand out, in such a way that it might demand some kind of explanation from us? 
And I think the answer to that, without, before I go practical, I think the basic answer, how do we live a different life? I think the answer is found in that first sentence. Here's what we do. In your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. We do that, and we do it in the context of our work. What that means is, in your hearts, let Jesus be your one and only Lord and master. In your heart, let Jesus be the motivation that drives you. Let Jesus be the audience that you're considering as you do what you do. Let him be the driving force behind all of your actions. And what you need to know is that is actually part of an Old Testament quote that begins in verse uh, 14. So if you look at the back end of verse 14, look at the second half of verse 14, I have my... Translation has it in quotes. It says, do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened, but in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Peter is quoting from the book of Isaiah, from Isaiah chapter 8, okay? And I want, to, I want you to see that, that original quote. This is what Peter's referencing. So God is speaking to the prophet Isaiah. He's living in a very disobedient culture and people's uh, and he's having to deal with the crunch of those two kingdoms. And God says to Isaiah this, don't call conspiracy everything that these people call conspiracy. Don't fear what they fear and don't dread it. Okay, the people you're living with, there's, they have these various fears. They're afraid of these foreign invaders coming in and invading Israel. There are all sorts of things that they're worried about. And God is saying, don't fear the things that these people fear. And he says, let me give you something to fear. The Lord Almighty he is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He said, don't fear what the people fear. Let the fear of the Lord drive you and motivate you to do what you do. That phrase, the fear of the Lord, uh, you guys heard that phrase before. It's a, it's a very common biblical phrase that shows up throughout the scriptures, okay? Old Testament, New Testament. It's, it's the fundamental posture we're to have in life, according to scripture. It is this posture of awe and reverence and respect for the Lord and this desire to serve him, to honor him, to live in a way that would glorify him. And I think the fear of the Lord, it comes from two places. One, it comes from our, our sense of the immensity of God's power and authority. Okay? We have this clear idea of just how big and awesome God is, how he created everything, how we're completely dependent on him for our existence, how we will one day have to give an account of our lives to him and to him alone. There's a sense of awe that comes from that kind of authority. But on the other hand, I think it's also this sense of, of the, the immensity of his love and his grace and all of the ways that he blesses us. The fact that every good thing that we have in our lives comes from him. The fact that, of course, he sent his son to die for us, and he offered us forgiveness and freedom and salvation. And we say amazing grace, right? How sweet the sound. You saved a wretch like me. I'm in awe of your goodness, your generosity towards me, your grace that I don't deserve. So that's what the fear of the Lord is, this, this awe that comes from a sense of his power and authority, but also his love and his grace. And so Peter is now applying this to Jesus Christ, the carpenter from Nazareth, and saying, don't fear what these people are fearing, in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. You set him apart as, as holy. You stand in awe of who Jesus is and say this, Lord, I want to live every day with you as my audience. I want to live every day to please you, to honor you. I want to live every day with you. And so I think that gets at it. I, I think what I want to talk about is what does the fear of the Lord mean in the context of our work. 
What does it mean to bring the fear of the Lord into my working life so that it shapes and motivates what I do, not just at home, not just at church, but at work? I'm working in a way that is pleasing him. I know that I will give an account ultimately, not to my boss, not to some shareholders, not to clients or whatever, but ultimately, I may have to give account to them, but ultimately I give an account to Jesus for how I live my life at work. The fear of the Lord. And I I was thinking about fear this week in the context of work. And what I was thinking is, you know, in our work environments, we're surrounded by people who are actually full of fears, okay? They may not express those fears out loud, and we ourselves, of course, are full of fears. Um, But there's all sorts of fears that drive people at work. Their fears are connected with their deepest values, the things they hold dear. I want to give you a couple examples. There are a lot of people who fear insignificance. And so they are so driven to achieve and succeed at work. There are people who really fear being exposed as a failure. Uh, So they'll do just about anything to avoid taking responsibility for mistakes. They'll find ways to pass the buck on to somebody else. Uh, Some people uh, fear just plain hard work. (laughs) So they're lazy. Uh, Some people fear not being in control. And so they try to micromanage everything. Some people fear conflict, and so uh, they're not willing to have the hard conversations that would actually be good for relationships at work. Uh, Some people fear risk, and so they're not willing to take those steps, those risks that might be good for the company. And the idea is that in Jesus Christ, I know this doesn't just happen in the blink of an eye, but slowly over time, he begins releasing us from those fears, those lesser fears. And our heart's motivation becomes increasingly, you know what? I don't really care what they think, or I don't really care how much I make, or I don't really care about all these various things, being in control. What I care about, I do, sure, I do care about those things. But more than that, I care about you, Lord. I, I, wanna, I wanna live in a way that honors you. That is, that is the driving force behind what, why I do what I do at work. And so I wanna pause for a minute and just have you ask yourself, like, what would it look like for me if that, this desire to honor Jesus, to walk with him, what, if, what would it look like if that was the motivation each of my days as I go about my work and responsibilities? What, what would change? What would be added? What would be taken away? What, how can I see how that might play out in my individual context? So what I want to do for the rest of the time is I want to give you some examples, some concrete examples of how this might play out. And I'm going to just let you hear from yourselves, okay? So I asked some people that question and got a bunch of responses. And uh, I put them in various categories, tried to kind of categorize these. And I thought it'd be fun for you just to hear from each other. This is how we're trying to do this. All right, so what does it look like to honor Jesus at work, practically speaking? Uh, First one, pursue excellence at work. Uh, this is from one of you who, is, who practices law. Said this, uh, my clients are rarely looking for spiritual guidance. What they want and need is excellent legal services at a reasonable price. They want a good lawyer. And I honor Christ by being a good lawyer, which as I see it entails being honest, honorable, respectful, and even kind. And it also entails speaking the truth. And I want to start by just saying, never underestimate the spiritual value of just doing work well, (laughs) okay? 
That is a spiritual thing. That's part of how God designed us to, to, to add value to his creation and to do it with excellence. That's how we serve the greater good. And so that is a spiritual thing. We are now working for Jesus. So now that I'm working for Jesus, should my work be better or worse now that I'm working for Jesus? We still want to have that, that value of excellence in our work. Uh, uh, someone else talked about that, that excellence, not just as an individual, but as a company. So uh, this person's in the, the health and fitness uh, arena and says, because of the way that specialization now works, it's difficult for any one professional to actually deliver both health and fitness. So you have, you know, you have fitness places, gyms that are doing fitness, and then you have other people who are doing health. You have nutrition and doctors and all this, and those are often very separated. And so they're trying to bring excellence by bringing those together. The approach my, that I'm trying to help my company take is, is, uh, is meant to be innovative in the hopes that our work changes the future of health and fitness by reshaping the way industry approaches health and fitness. We are attempting to serve the work. That's a Tim Keller phrase. Uh, my hope is that my industry will be better in the future because of the work we have done. So as a company, they're trying to bring innovation into an industry that is being, they hope will be done with better excellence. They're trying to serve the work. All right, so that's a basic Really important one, pursue excellence at work. Uh, another one is practicing his presence at work. Beginning to spend your days with Jesus as your faithful companion throughout the details and the challenges of your working day. Uh, someone I asked who is uh, raising children full time said this. My job description would read, quote, one who purposely executes child development and household functionality while willing to compromise sleep and personal well-being on a regular basis. <laughs> uh, my encounters, and, and they go on to talk about this idea of trying to practice Jesus' presence. My encounters with Jesus do not look the same as they once did before children. But in many ways, those encounters are far more creative and varied than I could have imagined them to be before. Nursing in the middle of the night became a sweet, vulnerable time of communion with him. Playing music throughout the house that sings of his love for me. Enjoying creation with my kids and pointing it all to the creator. Grasping a posture of gratitude when there is very little left in the tank or when the minutia seems so mundane that surely the job title low-level servant seems more fitting. And above all prayer, he has never failed to meet me there. Bless it. I love that. that. That's a description of not working for Jesus, but working with Jesus. Right? He's my companion in the journey. Uh, someone else uh, who is now in the early childhood stages said it this way, I used to work in the helping profession. It felt very clear what it looked like for me to honor Jesus in my work there. I offered dignity and care and sometimes boundaries to those who were in a fragile place in life. I respected my boss and coworkers and handled my work and deadlines responsibly. I listened and offered support to people who may who many did not want to listen to or just did not know how to offer support or were uncomfortable being around. Then I became a mom and my passion transferred from that place and those people to the little people in my own home. In similar ways, I see the value of these precious children and want to offer them dignity, support, boundaries, and love. I want to care about what they have to say. That can be a hard one sometimes. <laughs> Jesus says, let the little ones come to me. My prior job did take a toll on me at times, as does this one, but the difference is this time I don't clock out ever. <laughs> Another big one, work as a context to do the first command, right? Love God and love neighbor as ourselves. How we treat people at work is so important. Here's someone who um, runs a small company 
Uh, I try to extend the golden rule by asking what Jesus would do for this employee if he were in my shoes. We had an employee who was really underperforming. After a frank discussion, we discovered that she was considering rehab for an addiction. We helped her get into rehab for three months and covered her job responsibilities so that she could transition back into her job when she got out. Her gratitude over the years has far outweighed the investment in time and money. Pretty great. Uh, Here's someone in the restaurant industry. This is another way of trying to love through communicating well. When I stepped into this company, there was a lot of dysfunction in how conflict was dealt with and how much passive-aggressive communication there was. I have tried to treat and manage people in very consistent ways. When I started there, uh, uh, when I started, there was one particular employee who was being mistreated. Stepping into that, I tried to manage him in the way in which Christ would manage. That's the same theme. I am very direct on the issues he has, but I also attempt to care for him and his well-being. I am consistent in how I deal with him, and when something inappropriate takes place, I stand up to the CEO and the owner to challenge the way in which they deal with employees. This has started to open doors with this employee, where we were able to discuss items such as politics, that's the gateway drug, and where we have been able to talk about our beliefs in God and how we relate to him. It has been a great relationship, and I hope to continue to earn his trust and take care of him. Uh, subcategory of loving your neighbor, I think, is this, this theme of generosity. I think work is, is a great place to practice generosity of our time, of our gifts, of whatever. I asked uh, someone who is in the retirement stage what, what, how they're engaging in work, and this theme of generosity came up to me. This is what they said. I love this. Uh, when you move into retirement, you go from having a purpose and a specific venue to fulfill that purpose to now having to create the environment to get purpose. I have come to the understanding that retirement is not about me, but about what God wants to do in my life at this stage. I've tried to find out where I can create purpose and try things while giving them to God and seeing if he's in it. And then he describes this experiment he tried. I wouldn't necessarily recommend this, but I like it. Uh, For a three-month period, I decided to seek God's direction by saying no to, not saying saying no to anything. That's a double negative. I I think there's a movie about Yes Man, right? So he just, I'm not going to say no. Um, uh, For three months, from helping in the most menial manner to giving financially, I simply did not say no. Out of this came a number of opportunities to share and minister. It goes on to say, I seek out young people who might be open to mentoring. I certainly don't tell them that's what I'm doing. I just ask if they'd like to have lunch sometime. Usually I get a positive response and I'll set it up. Then I'll gauge the discussion and share what I hope are godly principles. And then I wait to see if they reach out to continue the relationship. Generous, generosity. Uh, Another big one that a lot of people mention is, I would say, the theme of integrity. (laughs) Practicing being faithful to your word, being a person of integrity in the context of work. Uh, One of you in the medical profession mentioned how you try to do this, to always be honest and ethical as I present options to them for treatment. It would be pretty easy to tell patients they need certain treatment when they don't, right? The classic upsell that you're tempted to do, and yet there's an integrity. This, this, This person doesn't actually need this treatment, so being a person of integrity in that. Uh, Another person uh, in a marketing company, uh, their company uh, sells what he calls lead generation retainers. Basically, you know, they're marketing, they're they're promising, hey, if you come alongside us, we can promise a a certain number of leads for you, right? Whatever the number of leads. 
And they said this, over time, I realized that promising a specific number of leads was actually outside of my realm of control. I I rewrote our contracts to focus on what I could promise, which is the activities our company would do, and spelled out the intended outcomes for the client. That promise has transformed our business and pitching promises. We now track promises to clients in our project management system and fight hard to deliver on every one. We spend significant time making sure we only promise things that are in our realm of control to deliver. I thought that was pretty great. And then one more, uh, integrity. This one happened 25 years ago. Uh, One of you uh, was hiring a uh, tax uh, attorney to do your taxes. 25 years ago, I met and then hired Bill, who was and is a very aggressive accountant and tax planner. One of his first questions was, something maybe you all heard from time to time, how aggressive do you want me to be uh, in saving you money on business and personal income taxes? I told him I was a born-again Christian follower of Jesus and wanted him to be as aggressive as possible, stopping right before my acceptance of his tactics gave Christianity and my testimony a bad name. It's pretty explicit. Uh, That's been a 25-year relationship. This person has since then become a Christian, and, and one of you was praying for him regularly, and now there's this cool relationship. Integrity. Uh, Two more. Uh, Trust in adversity. I I think one of the best ways to stand out is how we deal with conflict, challenges, adversity, what people see us do with stress. Uh, One of you who's also in a practice of law, uh, she said it this way, uh, God has given me several opportunities to prove that I trust him. I like that, opportunities to prove I trust him, right? Read challenges in that. Uh, This has come in the form of being presented with a situation where I feel I need to prove that I did not make a mistake, that it was the client or a different advisor who had made this mistake to protect my image or for whatever reason. In about half the cases, I went ahead and tried to rectify it in my own strength. And she went on to say how those didn't go so well. Uh, But in the other half of the cases, I prayed first and didn't respond defensively. And in 100% of those cases, God fixed it by having the person who was wrong actually say so themselves and apologize. I don't think you can promise that 100% record, but it's been her case, uh, which is awesome. I think this has proven that trusting God and loving people is the best way to go. So I think of the fruit of the Spirit, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control in the context of adversity. That's really hard, right, in certain work environments. And yet I think the fruit of the Spirit still applies. It doesn't not apply to work. And so that was one way she was trying to be patient, be non-defensive. One more, and then of course, you give an answer when you're asked (laughs) in ways that are appropriate to your context. Last story uh, from a high school teacher. And you remember when I challenged you guys to do a prayer walk about a month ago? And I was thinking the context of your neighborhoods. So uh, this person is referring to that. After talking about doing a prayer walk at church and in home group a few weeks back, I figured I should actually do one myself. And they did this in the context of their work in the, in the school environment, the high school. So after grading some less than stellar quizzes right before lunch, I was in no mood to go for a prayer walk, but did it anyway, knowing how I felt wasn't really the point and knowing it might be good for me too. Later that day, two of my former students who had heard that I was the new advisor for the Christian club on campus came by and asked and said, I didn't know you believed in God. They then asked what I thought about God and and I asked them back and I came to find out that they did not believe in God. After they asked again what I believed, I told them that I believe that Jesus really did rise from the dead and that anyone who can do that is someone I should listen to. 
Uh, and that led into a, a, into a myriad of other topics, he says. And then he, he finished it this way. He said, the fact that they walked in unannounced on the same day I did the prayer walk seemed more than mere coincidence to me. Pretty cool. So I know this is not exhaustive, um, but this is some of your all's answers to that question. How do we honor Jesus at work? And so I want to leave you with that question, and, and we're going to pray, as we always do, as I close out um, this, but I want to create a little bit of space. We're going to spend about 30 seconds of silence, and just think about, like, given where I'm at right now in life, are there one or two specific ways that I can see God inviting me into doing this? So let's uh, just bow our heads, and Lord, we, we want to honor you in our lives. We want to do it at work, and for many of us, that's, it's hard to figure out what that looks like. It's a challenging place to do that. But even now, would you be speaking to us about what that would look like for us? Are, are there certain fears that drive us that you want to release us from? Are there certain values? Are there certain very specific, concrete steps that you're inviting us into uh, in the coming weeks? We take a minute to just listen, to be with you, and to consider our work with you. Lord Jesus, would you make yourself real to us, not just on Sundays, not just at home, but in the, <laughs> the thick and thin of our, of our daily lives. Would your presence guide us, comfort us, equip us to live well, to honor you. Fill us with your spirit. Empower us that we might do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.